Hello, and welcome to the In the Booth podcast. I'm your host, Alan Etzler. I'm joined today by our uh, public safety reporter, Jeremy Arias. Jeremy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Alan. And we're joined with a, a very special guest, uh, Sheriff Chuck Jenkins. Uh, Sheriff, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So we're going to jump right into some uh, some of the election issues, but first I just want to know, uh, we're as of this recording, we're about 27 days out of the election. So how has the campaigning been going? What are some of those issues you've been campaigning hard on uh, this year? The campaign for me has going is going well, I think. Uh, the public uh, reception I'm getting is very good. I sense that things are going well, but I tell you, you never know until election day. So I go 100 miles an hour, pedal to the metal, I don't look up until November 6th. So what are, what are those issues? Uh, you're running for your fourth term, right? This this will be my fourth term, yes. So what are some of those issues you're campaigning, and how have they kind of changed through those those last 12 years? Well, some of the issues that we're facing now we didn't know about 12 years ago. Uh, for instance, the heroin, uh, more than an epidemic but a societal crisis, the, the addiction problem in the community as a whole, uh, that's a big issue. Uh, secondly, I, I think is uh, – the, the overall, uh, when you look nationally at some of the problems that tend to may come here over time, you have to look at the presence of criminal gangs in our surrounding counties. We need to do what we can do to keep them out of here as best we can. That's a big issue, uh, along with the, the addiction problem, is the flow of drugs into this county, into this community. We're doing some really good things. And then I think uh, something that's often forgotten is that we've just been through the worst economic crisis in, in history, and as a local government, we felt that, and we still have to demonstrate fiscal responsibility, which I've done over 12 years, and I continue to uh, look at that as a, as a priority for the agency. All right, and I know one thing that you that you also mentioned was uh, was education, uh, safety in schools. Yes, there was, yes. There's actually been um, quite a bit of talk about that there in has. light of some national events, and uh, I think when we were talking a couple of days ago, uh, we were going over some of the steps that you guys have taken. Right. Uh, what What were some of those steps? What are some of those steps? School safety seeing? is a priority and will become more of a priority in, in the coming years. So as an agency, we are positioned very well in terms of the school resource officer program now and into the future. We've got what is a statewide model as far as the SRO program. Uh, we are now, we've been where the where everybody else needs to be now. We've already been there. So we have a deputy in every high school in frederick county and that deputy is responsible for not only the high school but the feeder schools the feeder cluster so we've been there for years we've got what's a very effective program we work well with the local frederick county public schools we communicate we plan we train together so we do all the things we should be doing it's where do we go in the future so last year when the maryland safe to learn act was passed it said it, it mandated that that as of this current school year there will be an SRO in every high school in the state. Well, most most counties weren't to that point. We were already there. So now we have to plan going forward. What is adequate school security going forward? What does that look like? We don't know yet. Uh, I sense uh, that there's going to be an outcry for a law enforcement officer in every school. That's not fiscally possible. It's not realistic because of the hiring problems that we're all having in law enforcement. So as time goes by, we're going to have to look for ways to cover our schools with our directed patrols from our patrol operations uh, by the simple fact that that everybody in our agency visits schools every day that may be a part of how we define adequate security but we'll get there but it will be a priority yeah i want to talk a little bit about it. so we have uh the the sro in, in every feeder pattern but right. we we kind of uh, maybe one of the challenges of frederick county is how sparse some of these schools are and so how do you balance having that 
that officer and that feeder pattern to get to some of those schools that are maybe kind of in the outer parts of the uh, of the county, like like a Sibyllisville, maybe. Well, because very simply, the the SRO assigned to Catoctin will visit that school in Sibyllisville, or the deputy that's working that patrol area in the north end of the county will will stop in there throughout the course of the day. So again, it's a combination of use of resources through the SRO and also our directed patrol efforts. Do, do they operate on a specific schedule of when they visit, or is it kind of kept random? Random, random. Okay. As, as needed or random, depending on what they have going throughout the day. Now, Sheriff, I uh, wanted to ask you a quick question in, in that line of thinking, but also getting into a little bit um, one of your other platforms uh, that, that you've talked uh, quite a bit about, uh, fiscal responsibility. Uh, as I'm sure you're probably aware, uh, FPD, the Frederick Police Department, um, some of your partners in the, in the region have talked about before the possibility of implementing their own SRO program for schools within the city limits. Uh, traditionally, those have been handled by the sheriff's office, their county mm-hmm. facilities. Um, but when that discussion mm-hmm. last came up, I know that uh, Chief Ed Hargis was talking about pursuing grants as an option uh, from some federal grants that would secure funding for additional officers for that purpose. Um, we talked a little bit uh, a couple of days ago about your approach to looking at uh, federal assistance or, or federal grant money uh, and your, your policy of fiscal conservatism. Uh, would you be willing to expand on that a little bit? Well, yeah, let, let me step back. And, and uh, I've had conversations with Chief Hargis about, well, absolutely. The, okay, about basically the FPD taking um, uh, charge of security in the city high schools. I think that should happen. I think it will happen, and I think he's headed in that direction. As far as the other municipalities taking, uh, I guess, charge or responsibility in their schools and their municipalities, this has to be part of a large countywide conversation that everybody has to be on the same page. I think that's the direction it will eventually head in. But let's go back to your question about the grants. Listen, you got to be very, very careful about how you commit future funding and resources to personnel when when you know that right now you can't afford that and in the future you may not be able to afford that so i'm very careful in in how i work toward a grant or apply for a grant that's going to hang the county on a hook for for years to come i don't think it's the right way to go i think we we hire the personnel and we put the dollars when we have the dollars to put them there i i just will i do not believe in and will not put this county in the position uh to provide funding it doesn't have Mm-hmm. And I think you see that with some of this uh, conversations over these safer grants, where for a couple, the first couple of years, it's all good because the federal government picks up the, uh, uh, the the expense of salaries and benefits and all that. But eventually, that check's going to come due. The county has to pick up that funding obligation, and it's going to be extremely difficult going forward. And you're referring, of course, to the safer grant that that secured uh, twenty five firefighters. Right. And and I think, and again, this is kind of out of my bailiwick here, but uh, I think they're going going for another twenty five firefighters. So, so that's the question becomes: How are we going to pay for this in the future? So what if the sheriff says, "Okay, I'm going to put in for twenty five more deputies"? Well, you know what? That's an awfully huge expense. Mm-hmm to commit to now and you may have and and i point to the fact we've been through a horrendous economic period in this in this country and and it you know certainly the county felt it county government so i'm just not going to do that there's a way to accomplish what we need without putting this county in a financially uh uh, dire straits maybe going forward so Mm -hmm. now as far as grants generally i do apply for we do get grants for homeland security for uh, sex offender uh, enforcement, for domestic violence, uh, a number of, of grants that we do apply for and we do receive, that we do good work with, 
and there's not a lot of strings attached. We can use that money for those specific missions, but we're not, we're not tied to future obligations. Right. I want I want to go back to the SROs real quick. Is the does the training differ as to how you um as to the type of officer maybe an SRO is or the type of training he rece- he or she receives being in a school versus uh, just a, a deputy who is kind of in the community in general, not okay. just in a school? Well, first, the, the law enforcement training for every, every deputy, every law enforcement agency is virtually the same. Okay, so the deputies who choose to be in the schools or we assign to the schools okay. are deputies who want to be there, number one. Uh, and I got to tell you, as far as our agency, we have some of our best patrol deputies assigned to schools. We've got some of the best former narcotics detectives, criminal investigators, and we have people who want to be there. We don't have people who are trying to end a career, just want a place to, to spend eight hours a day. I've got some of the most interactive, uh, 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 I, I, won't, I don't want to say aggressive, but in terms of enforcement, they're, they're at the top of their game, okay? They they really, really are a presence in those schools. That They get along well with the students, the faculty, so they want to be there. But they do receive specialized training. It's it's uh, There's an organization, NASRO, uh, National Association of School Resource Officers. It's a two-week block of training, especially for deputies or police officers who want to go into the school systems and police. So they do get that training along with our in-service training every year. Uh, there, there, there's additional trainings that come up in the course of a year. We do, uh, they do receive that. So, but they are especially trained, and they do have a sense of what they need to do in schools that's different from how they police on the streets. Now, one of the big things that, um, if we could have another topic change, I mm-hmm. know we, there's a lot of issues to cover uh, ahead of this election, right. a lot of things that people are talking about. And one of the bigger things I think you mentioned already in the beginning uh, this ongoing opioid epidemic right. and responding to finding a finding some approach to that um, that works here in Frederick County that might not work in another jurisdiction but that works here in Frederick County. Uh, you mentioned it was uh, I believe you called it a societal. Uh, I think this whole addiction and it's the addiction problem right now. The drug of the day is just heroin. Okay, but it's, it's the addiction crisis. It's a it's a societal crisis. It's a behavioral crisis. And how do we fix this from coast to coast? Nobody seems to have a, an idea because it's such a huge, enormous problem. The only thing that changes are what are they addicted to. It could be alcohol. It could be cocaine. It could Right now it's heroin. And I think the other day when we talked, I fear the day when crystal meth comes into this community, mm-hmm. which is much worse. But, but right now it's, it's heroin. It's opioids. And, and like I said, like I have said, this is not a problem that's going to be fixed by the sheriff or law enforcement or the county executive or public health or Dr. Brookmeyer, for that matter. This is this crisis is going to be addressed and resolved and, and, and solved in their living rooms, around their dinner tables. When families realize that there's someone in their family who has an addiction problem, how do they get that person the treatment, the help they need to recover? That's where it's going to be solved. Now, for law enforcement, our job is to enforce the law, Okay. We educate, we make the public aware, and we enforce the law, and we get the drugs off the street. That's what law enforcement does, and we are doing a good job of that in this county. And I, when I say we, I mean all the agencies that, that are out there working. So we are doing what law enforcement should, could, and would be doing. We're doing our job. We're also out there educating, making the public aware. And I mentioned the other day um, this detox that is proposed for the Work Police mm-hmm. Center. I think this is the one single component 
that we need in this community that's going to make a difference for the person who has the addiction problem and the overdose. And we go out and we Narcan that person. And that person says, I need help. I want help. I want off the street. Right now, there's nowhere to take that person. In time, with the use of this facility, as I proposed, I think that's going to be there and it's going to save lives. So it's, it's, it's a very complex problem which starts with the addiction problem overall. And, and again, it's going to be every component of government, law enforcement, public health, public safety, that's going to have to come to the table. And we have. We have. We really have. But I, I think uh, with this detox, it's going to be the one single component that's going to make the biggest difference. Uh, you mentioned Narcan, and I want to get back to the detox center, mm-hmm. but I want to talk about Narcan real quick. Um, we, we see, at least last year, I don't know w- what you're on pace for this year, but the, the uses of Narcan, the amount of time, instances Narcan has been used to, to save somebody increased right. uh, pretty dramatically, I think. Has that made, has the added benefit of having something like that made it more difficult for the sheriff's office to do its job in terms of enforcing? No, and let me say this. I, I don't necessarily agree with the availability on such a massive scale than Narcan. But as a law enforcement agency, we have an obligation to go out there and, and when the opportunity uh, presents itself uh, to save a life. I believe we do. And we do that. And as a matter of fact, since we've been administering Narcan for roughly started late 2013 until now, we've saved over, I think the number's about 108 lives with Narcan, just the sheriff's office. So it, it's been a good thing from that sense. The problem with the Narcan is that there's so much Narcan out there that people have now become to basically as a safety net. If I'm an addict, I'm going to go ahead and shoot up because I know my friend, my family, somebody's got Narcan, and most likely, most likely, chances are they're going to administer that Narcan and I'll be okay. The problem becomes one of these times no one's going to be there or EMS is not going to get there or the deputies aren't going to get there, and you're not going to save my life. I'm, I'm going to be a casualty. I'm going to be a statistic. So I think it's a double-edged sword. We do it, and I think we have an obligation to do it, and it's been very effective. But the problem is, uh, it, it, and I can't really say it interferes with, with what we do out there. It's another component of how we address this problem. And so with the with the detox center, I think um, you know you you mentioned that it was the the first time that County Executive Jan Gardner gave you a high five, or or that you made her smile. I, I got to tell you, she <laughs> smiled. She she gave me a high five. She smiled, and uh, honestly, we, we work fairly well together. Uh, and as far as we have political differences, I think we we've both done a pretty good job of of working together, making it work. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I made her smile. She was happy. And, um, again, she's bought into this, and I believe she sees a value in it. Do, do you feel like this is kind of the maybe one of the, the few issues that, at least in today's this, political climate, that kind of transcends those party lines in some ways? It, it, uh, listen, this is for the greater good of this community. It has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with the election. It, it is, I saw the opportunity to use an underutilized resources for something we don't have. And it's for the greater good of this county and, and for the people who live here. Uh, I want to get into kind of the, the one criticism, I guess, we heard that was brought up. I, I think uh, Delegate Karen Lewis-Young brought it up uh, in, in regards to the, the, I guess, stigma of using a, a kind of secure facility um, to uh, help people who are, who are addicted. Do you, how do you feel like that um, 
that facility, how do you get rid of that stigma? I guess people who may not want to come to a facility. First of all, I'm going to that was a very foolish remark. Uh, it, 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 there's no basis for that comment. Okay. First of all, if I've got a son or I've got a daughter or family member who's an addict, give me a secured facility. I don't want the drugs coming into that facility. I want to be able to protect that person from what's out there. I don't want them necessarily just to come and go. Now, it's, they're there voluntarily, so if they want out, they can get out. It's not a part of the jail, okay? It's not bars and it's not, uh, uh, you know, steel walls. It's more like a college dorm environment. Very clean, very aesthetically comfortable. Uh, it's got off, It's got very clean dorms and showers and, and plenty of bathrooms. It's got a cafeteria. It's got laundry facilities. So I think that was a foolish remark. But I will tell you from the standpoint of people who I've talked to, who have family members who are, have addiction problems, there's nothing better than a secure facility. Would they would they inter- intermingle? And I thought this was addressed, but I can't quite remember. Would they, they would not intermingle with the work release people. They would not. No, even they, in the cafeteria type. That's setting. correct. That okay. We've already uh, kind of flushed these uh, things through, and, and we said, you know what, we can make this work. There's going to be renovations within the building that keep the two populations from any any interaction whatsoever. Uh, and remember this: most of the well, everybody down there works, so the work release population is gone for the most part through the course of the day. But aside from that. We have planned, uh, if this works out like I think it can, that we'll keep the two populations separate. It'll be a successful operation, and uh, it's doable, very doable. Okay. Uh, another thing that you that you'd mentioned uh, quite prominently is the threat of of criminal gangs or criminal gang activity Correct. here in Frederick. What is sort of the state of the county in terms of criminal gangs? At this moment, we know that they're present. They have a presence here. We've seen the arrests. What to what level is that an issue now? And to, to what level is that a threat looking forward in the future to you? It's a uh, concerning threat right now. It's an increasing threat. Uh, there are a, a number of gangs. I think at last count, I believe there were as many as 63 or 66 criminal gangs. Now, I'm not talking about all Latino or all African-American or all motorcycle, but a combination of every criminal gang that we can identify. There are that many here in Frederick County. The number of members is really undetermined overall. Uh, What I'm concerned about, what I'm really concerned about, is the growing threat of MS-13. Now, there's people who will say, well, it's not really a threat. Well, I say it is. I say that unless we continue our course of how we enforce the law up here, I, I truly believe, as I'm sitting here, that the, the problems that they're having in Montgomery County and PG County with, with MS-13, those problems will eventually move into this county. Because in, as you see this population get here in greater numbers, obviously they'll become more emboldened, uh, they'll commit more crimes, they'll do their deeds, and they'll start to do those things in Frederick County. And that concerns me. And, and uh, again, I'm going to do everything I can if, if I'm fortunate enough to be elected to keep that menace out of here. And I think along that vein, talking about Montgomery County, we discussed this um, when, when I first was talking to you for uh, for the article that's going to it's going to run uh, about these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned uh, that there was um, uh, the numbers released in, in Montgomery County Police uh, by Montgomery County Police Department. I looked those up. Uh, and it looks like that that was a report from July indicating that violent uh, gang-related crime rose about 72 percent. More, more than what I'd said, probably. Uh, I think you'd said somewhere around 60-something. Yeah, 67, more. 68, right. Uh, 
so th- those those types of crimes rose uh, about 72% in the first half of 2018 compared to the same six months of 2017. Right. Um, Tell me a little bit more about why you think we're not seeing those numbers here in Frederick County. Uh, I know you said it is coming, so it, it you know there's 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 a trend to consider, um, obviously population differences. But what are some of the things in place here that that you feel deters these these? The one single thing that I believe for the for the most part keeps that problem out of this county is the 287G program. The fact that if we didn't have that program up and running here, you would see an increase in gang presence and gang activity and probably gang crime. But I really believe the word is out there and and, and these criminal elements know that if they come to Frederick County and, and commit their criminal acts, not only are they going to be arrested and jailed for the local charge, but very probable and most likely that they're going to be eventually deported, detained by ICE and deported after their sentences are adjudicated here. So the risk is this. Do you come to Frederick County where you know the laws are in force and the consequences are greater, or do you stay out of there and commit your crime somewhere else? And I argue any day that this has been a very good program for the county. It's a very effective program, and for that one single reason, biggest reason, is why we don't see that enormous gang problem here. I've had recent conversations with uh, uh, people in, uh, from the FBI who, and I didn't know this until recently, but MS-13 loves this part of the state. They love Frederick County because it rom- reminds them so much of their home country of El Salvador. The mountains, the remoteness, the, 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 the rolling hills. They can get out of the city environment, get out to the country. Uh, they like our mountains. Um, case in point, uh, we had uh, back in 2017, we had the case where the young man, the gang member, was brought up onto the mountain, stoned to death, killed, buried in a shallow grave. They tried to behead him with a machete. Mm-hmm. That was MS-13 in action in, in little old Frederick County, remote Frederick County, but it's here. Right. I believe that they brought him up. They brought him up uh, from, from from Silver Spring. If correct. I'm not correct. Yeah. Um, and so some of the, I mean, some of the, I guess, uh, criticism of 287G, if you will, is that it, it unfairly targets um, people of color. So can you take, Latinos. Well, can you, okay. can you kind of take me through the process of, of how, so obviously someone has to commit a crime, right? Correct. But what is the extent of the crime, what type of crime has to be committed, and what is the process from thereafter? First of all, over the 10 years of the 287G program, we have never, ever had a complaint of profiling, uh, discrimination, uh, even as far as discourtesy. And I'm talking about any law enforcement agency in this county, not just the sheriff's deputies. So you have to be physically arrested. I put cuffs on you. I, I arrest Alan Essler. I take you to jail with me today. All right. And through the course of of processing in central booking, you're asked two very simple questions. Now, we're not profiling on the street. We're not identifying people of color on the street because it has nothing to do with race or ethnicity, okay? It's simply if you commit a crime and there's probable cause to arrest you and take you to jail and you're processed in central booking, we ask every single person that comes in that jail two questions. Where were you born and what country are you a citizen of? And dependent on your answer, we can investigate your immigration status, okay? And in doing so, we identify that not only have you committed a crime in this county, 
that now we've found you're in this country illegally. We prepare the paperwork. We facilitate a process is all we do. We don't make decisions in the program. We prepare the detainer, the paperwork. We process you, and you become a detainee of ICE in our jail. It's, it's that simple. Then how is that fundamentally different from how things are done at other detention centers? I know <clears throat> typically uh, an individual's, I mean, you'll hear it at bail review hearings all the time. Uh, if, if somebody is here without documentation, that's typically an indication that they might be a flight risk. Uh, because when you find yourself in a detention center, um, the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement is going to be interested in whether or not you are you have documentation, you're here legally or not. Are you talking about my jail or other jails? I'm talking about how the 287G program operates differently from other detention centers. Other detention centers, uh, there's only two in the state of Maryland that participate. And Arundel County now very recently started... And Harford County has been in it for about two years now. So we are the only three detention centers, okay, that participate at all. So the other detention centers that don't, they basically don't do anything. And, and that person, uh, I don't know how their, their, their courts are in terms of bail for these individuals. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't know. But there's no hold on that person. Once they're, they're released on bail, personal recognizance, whatever, they're free to go. Those people who have committed crimes and are in this country illegally, are now back onto our streets, in many cases, to, to uh, uh, commit other crimes. That's what's different. That's, that's Certainly people were being identified by Immigrations and Customs Enforcement once they'd been arrested in other facilities without the 287G program. I, I, well, at, at one point they were a couple of years ago when they had the, there was another secure communities program. Mm-hmm. But again, not, not, every de- not every inmate was identified. And then you have those detention centers a lot of them who don't even cooperate. So if ICE contacts, uh, and I'm not going to name jails who don't cooperate, but I know for a fact there are jails who if ICE reaches out and says, hey, I understand, uh, I've learned uh, through the database check that you have a, a certain individual in your custody, would you hold that person once their commitment in your jail is through? Would you hold them for us? They won't even cooperate. They'll, they'll let that person loose back on the street. So there's no cooperation between some jails and ICE. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the other agreement with ICE that we mm-hmm. have, and it's the right. Intergovernmental Service Agreement, Agreement, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, IGSA. And mm-hmm. it's where, um, at least if I'm wrong, please tell me, uh, but the our detention center will house um, people for ICE who are awaiting deportation or uh, 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 trial. Yeah, you're, you're trial. right, yeah, yeah. Um, and so your your opponent has called for an audit of this program. Uh, the county did its, its internal audit audit agency did a uh, special report which is an independent audit authority okay so my opponent who calls for the audit it's already been audited in a very clean and and, and detailed audit it was presented now the night it was presented he was he was more interested in being back in the crowd instigating the the people causing problems than he was listening so referring to the annual report yes and and you know and you know you know that that was a very good presentation as a matter of fact, I didn't have to do that, but I did because I wanted the public to know. And so the audit's been done. These people who continue to call for an audit, nothing is ever going to satisfy them. We are audited for compliance. We are audited by ICE all the time, by independent. Uh, there, there are people who contract with ICE to come in their jail and audit. And they generally audit policies, conditions. Uh, are we in compliance with, with uh, uh jail standards detention center standards we pass with flying colors every time 
So this audit that everybody's calling for, it's already been done. There's nothing else out there to do. I hang my head on her numbers, which were pretty close to the numbers I had prior to the audit. So the argument's not there. The, the money that the revenue, the reimbursement, the reimbursement that we receive <clears throat> far out, far outseed exceeds the amount that it cost us to house, house these detainees. I think the numbers were $53 uh, was the estimate for housing an inmate for a day. $83 was the reimbursement. Right. Now, keep in mind this. The numbers that she used were so far or so conservative in terms of she included expenses that normally are never included in audits like that. So they, she even she went outside the box to make the numbers higher. I can tell you the real the real numbers are in the uh, probably in less than twenty or right in the low twenties are the real numbers. You're talking about the the expenses. Yes, for, the real numbers. Yes. Okay. So, but she used numbers generally that aren't. And, and again, I'm not I'm not into CPA, so I don't really understand this. But they're not normally included expenses. But she went out on a limb in the most conservative way possible. But I I do want to say um, so. Uh, your opponent and some of his supporters after that audit came out um, expressed that you know it was just a fiscal audit which to the which uh, until that point was the only argument they were making was, was whether or not it was a fiscally responsible program to be involved in but th- then there came kind of some calls for um, I, I guess non-fiscal things so conditions of the jail but you say that that stuff kind of happens Would that you- happens very you know what honestly uh, at least every other year they come in and they audit the 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 uh, workings of the jail the policy the standards are we in compliance they look at our files they look at the detainers we prepare they look at our medical uh, services down there, our food services. They look at everything. And I tell you, we had one. We had one violation about four years ago. And would you like to guess what that was? No. We, <laughs> we, we didn't post the barbershop hours in Spanish. Okay. You, they got to find something, right? <laughs> that's that's the only non-compliance issue we had. But now you say when when they they come they. in, uh, they they being of course. Uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement. Well, they are independent uh, auditors, uh, companies that are hired by ICE. Okay. They're hired by ICE to come in. Because another one of the criticisms is uh, the the line has typically been, well, you had this audit, but it was conducted by the Frederick County government at the the request of the sheriff's office. Is that truly independent? Uh, is another argument that is frequently made. But, but uh, they're, they're calling for a an independent agency to, to come in and, and do this audit, not only of the prices. What uh, they're the what cost. they're calling for, Jeremy, is the program to go away. Is what they're calling for. <laughs> well, okay, that, that, <laughs> let's let's cut to the chase. Sure. So that audit was very thorough. It was it was accurate. It was it was an outstanding work product. Okay. Now, if if is is my opponent slapping the face of the county executive uh, because uh, you know. This auditor is, although she's paid by the county, she does report to an independent audit authority. They want the program gone. That's what they want, mm-hmm. and and, and if, if they're going to do anything they can to get it out of here. So you go after. Uh, is, is it? Uh, uh, you know, is there a problem with with the uh, fiscal side of it? Is there a problem with the compliance side of it? There's no problem with any of it. I mean, one of the things that was brought up at that meeting again when we looked at the numbers. Um, I think if if you add up the percentages, approximately 82% of the people housed in as part of that agreement uh, were from either El Salvador, Guatemala, or Mexico. And there were individuals who stood up at that at that annual meeting and and accused this program of being 
prejudiced. Why so, wouldn't you? Because when you have no argument, that's the sword you draw every time. It has nothing. Listen, that is the population of Im- immigrants that we deal with in this region. Okay, if we were out, if we were out in, uh, let's say, Minnesota, if we were out in Minnesota, if we were out in Milwaukee, we would be dealing with a Somali population, okay, or or West African population. Uh, in this particular region of the country, the population that ICE deals with the most, as do we here locally, is the Central American and, and, and population from, from your Latin American countries in Mexico. That's simply what it is. Mm-hmm. We don't target these people. We don't. We simply don't. So, th- so that is the demographic, the population that, that we deal with and ICE deals with in this region. So, Awesome. I, I'll tell you this. So, so these, these critics of the program who want it gone, so they'll make any argument they can from every angle, the fiscal side, condition of the jail. I am the only thing standing between what we have now in the Sanctuary County. I can tell you that. So let the voters decide. Well, on that note, um, we, that is all the time we have for us. Uh, I will give you uh, 45 seconds um, to tell your uh, voters why they should vote for you on November 6th. Okay, well, thank you. So I've had the privilege of serving as sheriff for 12 years. I've been a part of this organization for over 28 years. We are a very well, uh, our agency runs well operationally, uh, internally. I've been a member of a great family, a growing agency. I still have the fire in the belly to do what I, to, to make the decisions I need to keep this county safe. I love this job. I love this community. And I believe that uh, the sense I get from this community is they want me to continue. I'm going to give it everything I have to stay there. Awesome. And so for voters, early voting starts uh, October 25th. Election day is November 6th. Sheriff Jenkins, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you, sir.